grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. The Lord be with you. Jesus befuddled a band of unbelieving Jews who had claimed that Abraham was their father. He befuddled them because he calmly informed them, and before Abraham was, I am. The implication of that truth is stunning, not only to the Jews, but even to us today. That means that Jesus Christ, as God, made the tree from which the cross was carved. Christ as God made the minerals from which his nails were forged. Christ as God set in motion the political events that sent Pontius Pilate to Judea, Herod to Jerusalem, and Caiaphas to serve as high priest. God then must have hung on a cross. God was pierced with a spear. God dangled from a cross. Dice were tossed at his feet. God bled. Yes. But the gospel writer John says the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. John emphasizes the word shines, present tense. He doesn't say the light shone. He doesn't say the light will shine. He said the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And with those last words, John prepares us tonight for Good Friday. And for Easter, nails, blood, sweat, tears, darkness, three hours of darkness, and then death. I'm I'm reminded of a story I saw recently about a shepherd in Palestine who was sheltering his sheep for the pen at night, and in the middle of the night he was awoke by, awakened by this terrible commotion at the pen. And as he looked outside, a, a wolf was grabbing and taking away one of his sheep. <clears throat> so he went out and started hitting the wolf, <laughs> protecting the sheep. And the wolf kept biting him back, bit him all over the place. Bites everywhere. And finally he killed the wolf. And later that night, he managed to bandage the sheep's wounds. And he wanted to protect him. So they laid together down there near the pen to keep him warm. He laid next to him. The next morning, a passerby noticed them laying there. And he noticed that one of them was not breathing. The shepherd had died, still protecting his sheep. The person told the story to the little newspaper editor, and the editor took the public paper out and said, Sheep alive, covered in shepherd's blood. Isn't that the story of Jesus? From the moment he was born, his enemies, these ravenous wolves, set out to kill him. They tried to butcher him in Bethlehem, tried to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth, tried to stone him in Jerusalem. They... Satan tried 40 days to beat him up and kill him and get him to do what he wanted to do in the wilderness. Jesus walked away from there unscathed. No, the only thing that killed Jesus, the only thing that would actually kill Jesus is one simple piece of wood. So God suffers and dies. I know that sounds strange. It sounds far-fetched. It sounds unbelievable. But God has suffered before. 
when God saw evil and misery multiplying on his creation, God grieved in abundant sorrow. When God saw Israel suffering in Egypt, he took it upon himself to come down into a burning bush and say to Moses, I know their suffering. God is the only person in Isaiah's book who is, who is called to be high and lifted up. It's a mystery then, because Isaiah also describes the servant as high and lifted up. And that tells us one thing, pure and true, that the servant and God are one. So Isaiah goes on to write about him who is both servant and God. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. We don't much like to hear those words, do we? We don't much like to recall this entire episode in the life of the Savior, do we? But we cannot and we should not seek to avoid it. We cannot, in good faith or in good conscience, jump over tonight's dark moments just to get to that hallelujah moment. No, we come here tonight. We face the music. We face the facts. We face our guilt. And we say thanks be to God. Tonight, we heard the story from an eyewitness, and that eyewitness did not spare the rod to spoil this child. In fact, a major theme in John's continuing story is blood. From the beginning of the gospel, John writes, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Lamb, Jesus, will shed his blood too. John records Jesus' words, Whoever feeds on my flesh drinks my blood, has eternal life. And on this night of horror, John writes, one of the soldiers pierced his side and was at once there came out blood and water. In John's gospel, blood serves a single purpose. It is to wash away your sins. Sin, after all, my friends, is the root of all evil. And it is ever-present, menacingly manipulating our lives. And no matter how hard we try, no matter what method we try to use to get rid of our sins, to escape the effects of our sins, we fail. We all fall short of the glory of God. We never measure up to the commandments He calls us to obey. But not for lack of trying trying to avoid them, trying to disrupt or interrupt, trying to disguise them, bury them, hide them, burn them to ashes, all of our shortcomings, all of our sins. We're very creative when it comes to our sinfulness. We like to project our sins onto someone else, rationalize our sins away, try to justify them, make comparisons, or downright deny them. Fact is, we probably tried one or more of those ways or all of those ways at some time in our lives. There is, though, only one solution to the problem of our sin. And John realized that when he didn't go to the upper room and hide. He stood under the cross of Jesus. How do we do that? We do that by admission, by contrition, and by confession. 
tonight in this darkened and subdued surrounding in the view of the cross. The great cost of our sinfulness hangs naked before us. And the only one disciple, the only eyewitness of that testimony 2,000 years ago tells you he is. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows the truth that you also may believe. John was there at the cross. He saw it all happen. And tonight he gives us his truthful testimony that God in Christ Jesus, his blood alone washes away your sin, all sin. Everyone who believes all sin is forgiven, washed away. Sin is forgiven. That's the free part. You don't have to do a thing. Forgiveness is free for you. But on Good Friday, this night, we are pound and, and, and we must learn and understand and remember what it costs Jesus. And while it's difficult to hear, it's worse to imagine, and it's agonizing to watch it in the movies. It is important to remember this, that Jesus' crucifixion at Golgotha was an act of utter barbarism and brutality. Horrific. Jesus is stripped before Herod's soldiers. He is stripped again at the command of Pilate. He is stripped a third time at the cross where the soldiers divide his garments by casting lots. When Jesus is flogged by the Romans on Friday, lacerations tear into his underlying skeletal muscles and produce these quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. The soldiers use a whip of braided leather thongs with spikes woven into them. When the whip strikes the flesh, the spikes cause deep bruises and lacerations. The whipping goes all the way from the shoulders to the back and down the back, all the way down the back of his legs. The Romans then throw Jesus on a piece of wood and drive tapered screws through his wrists and feet, all while mocking him and spitting on him. On the cross, Jesus' arms are stretched six inch upwards. I want you to imagine that so that his shoulders are dislocated. If you ever had a dislocated any part of your body, you know that pain. The stress of his diagram forces his chest into an inhaling position. And in order to exhale, he has to push up. And when he pushes up, he uses his feet to relieve the pressure of the diaphragm and to temporarily exhale. But in doing so, the nails tear his feet, locking up against his tarsal bones. There is no winning in this battle. For six hours, this Breathing motion goes on. Jesus scraping his shredded back against the coarse wood of the cross until he's totally exhausted, unable to push up or breathe. As his breathing slows, Jesus goes into 
respiratory acetosis, leading to an irregular heartbeat. In fact, his beating heart is so erratic, he knows death is near, and it is indeed his death is a result of cardiac arrest. This is what John witnessed under the cross with his own eyes. I don't know. You have a painting in front of you. Can you see it on the front cover of your bulletin? Can you see that with your lights? It's a painting by a famous artist, Peter Paul Rubens, in the 17th century. It is his artistry that you see on the bulletin. It's called The Descent from the Cross. Rubens is depicting the events of the cross that Friday after Jesus is dead. And in his painting, he envisions those attending to the body that blessedly and graciously and finally is at peace, at rest. In the background of the painting, you see billows of smoke. That's the clouds that still linger three hours after God imposed this darkness on the world. In the foreground is Jesus. You note that Rubens paints this sweeping diagonal line made by his white, shining white shroud. Christ's head dangles to one side. His body hangs limp. Sections of his skin bear the greenish-yellow color of death. In the left corner is Mary, Jesus' mother in blue. Mary is reaching up to her son. Her grieving face, lit by the whiteness of the cloth, reflects her broken heart. Mary's skin matches the ashen look of Christ. And we suddenly remember Simeon's prophecy in the temple so long before that a sword would pierce her heart. And we can scarcely imagine Mary's profound sense of loss and grief. Another woman supports Jesus' foot as it rests on her shoulder. Christ's foot is a clue to her identity. It's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. As a disciple, a disciple she once sat at Christ's feet, and shortly before his death, she took expensive perfume, anointed those same feet, and dried them with her own hair. Next to her is another woman. Her tears help identify her. It's Mary Magdalene, who is utterly crushed. So much so that on Easter morning, she runs frantically searching for Jesus. The man standing on the ladder to the left is Joseph of Arimathea. And he gives that away with the rich clothing that shows he has enough money to buy 75 pounds of burial spices and a new tomb. All for Jesus. Joseph is looking across at the man in black. That is Nicodemus, painted in black. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark. The person under Nicodemus is dressed in red. It is John, the gospel writer, the beloved disciple, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. John's eyes are fixed on Mary, Jesus' mother. From the cross, Jesus had said to Mary and John, Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. And here we see John already caring for Mary 
in her sorrow. But why does the artist portray John, the gospel writer, as being clothed in bright red? I suspect that is the question Reuben wants us to ask, isn't it? John, who is directly beneath Jesus, receives the blood that still drips from his head, his hands, his feet, his side. Christ's blood continues downward until it pours directly on John. It is a striking image. John, saturated in the blood of Jesus. Reuben sees this as John's testimony, seen from the foot of the cross. One other piece you see from that painting is in the very bottom right. Right-hand corner of the painting is a piece of paper with a Latin inscription and a rock on top of it. Those letters stand for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And next to the rock lies an offering plate that holds the crown of thorns and still more of Jesus' blood. What is the symbolism there? It is Christ's offering to you. It is Christ's gift to you. More cleansing blood. Ruben's image and John's eyewitness testimony invite all of us to stand like John at the cross, to hold on to Jesus like John to allow the Savior's blood to wash us like John. Because Christ's blood is the only solution for your sin. So we stand before the foot of the cross like John, clothed in red, forever forgiven. Amen. We rise for the prayers of the church.